the greatness of God's grace can only be fully recognized when we realize the grossness of our sin. I fear that our sin is not as gross as it used to be. What was once deemed awful is now acceptable. What was once nasty is now normal. What used to be called a vice today is called a virtue. What was once regarded as terrible is now tolerable. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that if my sinfulness ever becomes less detestable to me in comparison to the sin of others, I'm no longer recognizing my sinfulness. Today we continue our study of the book of Romans before the apostle Paul makes his way out of the first chapter to talk about the greatness of God's grace. He has to first give us a gross graphic portrait of our sinfulness. Today I wanna preach to you a message that's entitled, The Day God Threw Up His Hands. Romans chapter one, verses 18 to 32. I invite you to take a Bible and find that place. And once you have your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter one, I'll begin reading at verse 18. I'll conclude at verse 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with envy, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, 
but they also approve of those who practice them. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul begins our passage by saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. For most of us, we associate wrath with something that is sinful rage. We visualize wrath as somebody flying off at the handle. We think about a hot-tempered bully, an irate spouse, an unglued supervisor who just launches into a verbal tirade. When we think of wrath, we usually associate it with some sinful, rageful activity. But my friend, the wrath of God is not sinful. The wrath of God is righteous. Last week, we discovered that the word righteous is a word that conveys God's justice, his innocence, his moral purity, his excellence, his correctness, that God can only be righteous because he deals justly with sin. If God just simply swept sin under the carpet and gave it a wink and a nod, he would no longer be righteous. So God's rightful wrath is necessary against rebellious sinners. The Bible speaks of the wrath of God in numerous ways. One way the biblical author talks about the wrath of God is the eternal wrath of God. It's always on display in a very real place called hell. The eternal wrath of God is on display forever in hell. Hell is not something that's made up, it's something that's real. And it's far worse than any of us could ever imagine. In fact, we would not wish hell on our worst enemy. And in hell, there's the eternal wrath of God that's rightfully always on display. There's also the eschatological wrath of God. Eschatology is the study of last things. And the biblical author reminds us, consistent through the 66 books, that there's coming a day when judgment day will appear, when Jesus will come back. And on that great last day, God will inflict justice. He will pour out his wrath upon unrepentant sinners. So there is eternal wrath of God. There's eschatological wrath of God. And neither of those seem to be what Paul is talking about. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed. It's in the present tense. It implies a continuous action. It's something that was on display in the first century in the Roman Empire, in that Roman culture, and it's still on display even today. The wrath of God is being revealed in the moment, today, as it was yesterday, that the wrath of God is being revealed. This prompted John MacArthur to liken this understanding of the wrath of God, and he labeled it the wrath of abandonment, where God simply removes his restraining grace upon people. John Stott is in agreement with John MacArthur, and he says that this wrath that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1 is the imagery of God letting people go. 
taking his hands off of humanity as if to allow us to pursue a path of self-destruction. Friend, this version of the wrath of God is not where God intervenes with a lightning bolt. This version of God's wrath is not when God gives us a sanctified spanking, taking us behind the woodshed. This is not the wrath of God where he raises up a prophet to say, thus saith the Lord, and give us a holy uh, verbal tirade. No, this is the wrath of God where God doesn't intervene. This is the wrath of God where he takes a step back, takes his hands off. This is the day that God throws up his hands. The passage seems to lend itself to this understanding of the wrath of God, for on three occasions we find the phrase, God gave them over. It's in verse 24, it's in verse 26, it's in verse 28. On three occasions, Paul says that God gave them over. It was a gradual restraining of grace. It was a gradual letting go of humanity. It was a gradual taking a step back. It's subtle, but it's significant. It's subtle, but it's fatal. It's almost as subtle as the death coming from a thousand paper cuts. But at the end of the day, there's still fatality. Now you ask yourself the question, why would God let go of humanity? Before I left for seminary, I remember a specific lunch that I had with my grandmother. That lunch was several moons ago. By now, Grandma has gone on to be with the Lord. But I'll never forget that specific lunch in that beautiful June afternoon in Kentucky where we both were seated on her back porch. There are two things I remember about this lunch. The first one is she prepared her famous deep fried chicken. I can still smell the grease. I can still feel the cholesterol building up in my arteries and I tell you, it was good. The second thing I remember is a comment that she made. Davin, God has you by the hand. Don't ever let go. The reason God lets go of humanity is because humanity lets go of God. The imagery is that of a toddler who is doing his very best to pull his hand away from a loving father. He is squirming, he is yelling, he is yanking, he is jerking his hand away. And all the while, the father is desperately trying to hold on to that son. You've seen this play out in every aisle of Walmart. You've seen this play out in every aisle of Publix. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the squirming of a child. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. And the reason that God let go of humanity is because humanity defiantly and rebelliously let go of God. There comes a time in the life of an individual or a group of people, a society, dare I say a nation, when the collective individual of that nation says God does not exist and I want to let go of him. And I don't want him to have anything to do with me. And friend, when that happens, 
God throws up his hands and God takes a step back and God gives us over to our own self-destruction. What does it look like when God gives over a culture? What does it look like when God gives over a society to their own self-demise? In our passage, Paul gives four characteristics, and these four things mark as evidence that God had given over the Romans in the first century. And I want to argue today that those same four components are in play in our culture of the 21st century here in America. I'll say from the very outset that America doesn't look a whole lot different than first century Rome. Paul says first and foremost that when God gives us over to our own sinful desires, there is a prevalence of idolatry, a prevalence of idolatry. Revisit with me verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Drop down to verse 23. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul says that the wickedness of man has suppressed the truth of God. Let that statement sink in. That the wickedness of men, the ungodliness of men and women, boys and girls, it suppresses the truth of the knowledge of God. Now the remedy for that is just the reversal of that statement. That the knowledge of God suppresses the wickedness of man. But in this case and in our culture, it was the wickedness of men that suppressed the truth about the knowledge of God. Paul says that no one is without excuse, for God has imprinted his DNA and his fingerprints upon all of creation. You see in all of creation his qualities, his power, and his divine nature. Theologians call this general revelation, that creation demands a creator. Creation demands there must be a creator. All we have to do is look out and we can see that creation, this creation, the world, it demands that there is a creator. And it stands to reason that since there's a creator, this creator would want to make himself known. And God has put his DNA in all of creation from the smallest of human cells to the grandest of sunsets. No one is without excuse. No one can say there is no God. No one can say God doesn't exist. All we have to do is go outside and look at the general revelation that the Lord has manifest for everyone to see. For God truly exists. But when the wickedness of men and women, boys and girls, get so vast and so great, we suppress that knowledge of God. Now, God has wired us to be worshipers. Because it should be that the knowledge of God leads to the worship of God. But when there's so much wickedness in your heart, my heart, our society, when there's so much evil and so much wickedness and so much godlessness, it suppresses the truth of God. But it does not suppress your desire to worship. It just means that you're going to worship something else. You're going to put in the place of the immortal God, you're going to put in its place something made by God, an image of a man or an animal, a bird or a reptile. 
You'll put something in its place because as humans, we demand to worship something. It may be that we worship ourselves. It may be that we worship something else, but we desire to worship something. And where wickedness suppresses the truth of God, idolatry is prevalent. We see this in the Old Testament when God, by his mighty hand and an outstretched arm, delivered the children of Israel from captivity. They were led by Moses. They crossed the Red Sea. God was going to give the children of Israel the very word of the Lord. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and apparently had his head stuck in the clouds too long because the people said, we've got to craft for ourselves an image of God. So they hired Aaron and said, why don't you make for us a God? He told them to bring all their gold jewelry and earrings. He melted it together and out popped this calf. And the leaders of Israel said, this cow is the one that liberated you from captivity. The Bible calls that idolatry. Anything that takes the place of God is an idol. Anything that robs God's affection uh, in your heart, anything that takes away your attention from God, that's an idol. Nebuchadnezzar was not a godly guy, but he was a worshiper. In fact, he had such a worship complex, he wanted everybody to worship him. So he built an idol of himself, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and he struck up the band in order for everybody to fall down and worship. And just about everybody did in the pagan land of Babylon except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Idolatry was prominent, prevalent in the days of the Old Testament. It was also equally prevalent in the days of the New Testament. As Paul is writing this letter The Roman Empire is so vast, it is so powerful, that it is accurately stated that the sun never sets on the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, its culture was littered with the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses of mythology. In fact, there were pagan temples constructed uh, for all of these gods and goddesses, and they literally sprinkled the landscape Yes, of the major cities, but even along the roads. I mean, there were so many temples to so many deities. Every place you went, you couldn't help but to bump in to the religious. The people in Rome, they were very religious, but they were very pagan. They were guilty of idolatry. Even though 2,000 years have passed, not a whole lot has changed, friends. We are a religious nation. Why? Because God has wired us in such a way that we have to worship something. You think to yourself, well, we don't manufacture idols like the Greeks and the Romans. We don't do things like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't craft a cow like the Israelites. No, we may not have statues, but we do bow the knee to money and materialism. That's the one thing that we think about more than anything else. It's the one thing that we don't quite have enough of. And if we had just a little bit more, we'd be able to do this and do that. Why? To make life more comfortable. We bow the knee to money and materialism, to fame and fortune and family. We bow the knee to gold and goods. We even sometimes worship sports and sex and shopping. These are the things that dominate our thoughts and and, uh, hijack our affections. It's idolatry. Whenever there is a prevalence of idolatry, that is evidence of God beginning to hand over a people to themselves. But not only is there idolatry, but there's also a prominence of adultery. Look again with me at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over 
in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the grading of their bodies with one another. That word sexual impurity is a word that you may be familiar with. It's the Greek word pornea, from which we get the English derivative pornography. It's an umbrella word. What do I mean by that? It's a broad term that under it, there are a whole host of things that could fall under the category of sexual impurity. I realize that adultery is not new for the Romans. Adultery's been around since the dawn of time. But a case could be made that the Roman culture was one of the prominent cultures that took sexuality outside of the confines of the marital bedroom so that it was socially acceptable, it was normal practice and behavior for you to have multiple sexual partners. I've already told you about all the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And many of those temples had temple prostitutes where it was expected, it was normal practice and behavior for you to engage in sexual activity with multiple partners all in the hopes that the crops will grow in the field and the animals will be fertile in the barn and that your family will grow larger and your bank account will get stronger. And all these things were just normal activities. The Romans weren't the last to take the gift of sex outside of the boundaries of marriage. No, our American culture does that equally destructively. We are still living from the effects of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. The last six decades, we are still uh, living with the reality of friends with benefits and hooking up and living together before marriage. And all of those things in our culture seem to be normal, acceptable behavior. It's as routine as a handshake, or now in COVID-19, a fist bump. It's as normal as anything in society for somebody to have multiple sexual partners to live together before marriage. What's the problem with that? It's evidence that God is giving this nation over to its own sinful desires. When God gives us over, there is a prevalence of idolatry, there is prominence of adultery, but there's also celebration of homosexuality. Look with me at verse 26 and following. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust Even women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Friends, this is perhaps the clearest passage in all the New Testament where God declares that homosexuality is a sin. There is no other way to regard it. There is no other way to evaluate it. And the evidence of homosexuality and the celebration of homosexuality is something that gives evidence that God is handing this nation over. The people of Rome were pretty far left. They were a progressive culture. In fact, William Barclay says that 14 of the first 15 emperors were gay. It wasn't uncommon for somebody to have a homosexual lifestyle. 
In fact, in the Roman culture, there were numerous bathhouses, uh, all in major cities. And those bathhouses were public. And I don't have to tell you all the ungodly things that were done in and around those public bathhouses. And that was seen as normal behavior. It wasn't anything that was vile. It wasn't a vice. It wasn't anything that was degraded. It was something that was just normal. It was acceptable behavior. The homosexual lifestyle was an acceptable behavior for many in the first century of the Roman Empire. It was something that was celebrated from Caesar all the way down. Friend, once again, 2,000 years have passed. Not a whole lot has changed. We live in a culture where it is hard-pressed to find any television show that does not advance the LGBTQ agenda. We live in a culture where the policies of Washington and the programs of Hollywood give a constant barrage of the normalcy of homosexual activity. In fact, five years ago, in June of 2015, nine of the supposed brightest judges that this country has to offer legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. That was just five years ago. And the then president of these United States stood up after that declaration and that ruling by the Supreme Court and said, this is a victory for all Americans. Mr. President, I beg to differ. This is not a victory for all Americans. This is an indictment of all Americans. This is evidence, once again, that God is giving over this nation to our own self-demise and our own self-destruction. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? Because in this culture, there's a celebration of homosexuality. Friend, this is not hate speech. This is biblical speech. I'm just simply telling you what the gospel declares as we see when God lets go of humanity. I've already said that this is one of the most direct passages in all the New Testament when it comes to the subject of homosexuality. And there are many in the homosexual community that approach this passage in one of two ways. Number one, there are many individuals who simply dismiss this passage as irrelevant. This, along with everything else in the Bible, is deemed as antiquated and has absolutely no authority over life. Now, friend, that is one way to interpret the Scripture. I want to suggest to you that's a very bad way to interpret the Scripture. But it is one way. And there are individuals in the homosexual community and they approach this passage like they approach every passage in the Bible and they say, this has no relevance to my life. But there are many in the homosexual community who do approach this passage and at the very least try to engage in a biblical interpretation. Now, I want to submit a few of the arguments to you, but all of these arguments are erroneous at best. But still, if you have friends in the homosexual community, and I hope that we do, 
That when we engage our friends in these conversations, many times these are the rebuttals that are given to us when it comes to our faith and our understanding of God and the Bible. The first erroneous interpretation is that a person will say, I don't doubt that uh, Paul wrote that, and I understand it to mean exactly the way you understand that it means. But that is Paul writing to his day. It has no influence over this day. And my friend, uh, the way we refute that is to say that there is, in the gospel, consistent in the 66 books of the Bible, there is an ethical command that does not change. God's morality has never changed. God does not evolve. God does not change. He does not uh, uh, get with the program. He, he doesn't change in his thinking. For example, all throughout the Bible, there is a moral ethic that we are not to lie, steal, or murder. And that is transferable in every culture. That is transferable in every generation. We ought not today lie or steal or murder. Why? Because there's a standard. There's an ethical morality. There's a component of the gospel that compels us morally to do what is right. And God has described and defined what is right. There's a second argument. The argument uh, that may come from a homosexual friend that simply says what Paul was writing, he was addressing a specific situation between an older man and a younger boy. And he was saying that ought not to happen. Friends, I've already told you that in the first century, in and around the bathhouses, there was a lot of child abuse that went on. I do not doubt that. I don't debate that. I, I, I believe it's probably true. But if Paul was specifically speaking about a relationship between a man and a young boy, he would have used those terms. He said, men committing indecent acts with other men. He had at his disposal a vast vocabulary. He clearly could have said men committing indecent acts with young men, with young boys, with children. But he doesn't. He says that men were committing indecent acts with the same word, with the same, with, with other men of like kind. And also women exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones with other women. So Paul is addressing the gay-lesbian relationship and he is saying that this has consistently been not morally acceptable in God's sight. And that doesn't change. It never changes regardless of the century, regardless of the generation, regardless of how progressive we think our thinking ought to be. God has not changed. So to the person who says, Paul is just addressing a specific scenario between a man who is creeping on a young boy. Well, no. The words that he uses, men committing indecent acts with other men. There's a third prominent, uh, prevalent, erroneous interpretation of this passage. And uh, it simply says that Paul addresses the exchanging of a natural relation with an unnatural relation. And I've actually had an individual sit across a table and tell me, so Davin, it would be unnatural 
for me to have a heterosexual relationship. So what Paul is talking about is that whatever lane you're in, you need to stay in that lane. So what the argument says is if God made you homosexual, then you just ought to stay homosexual because that's natural. If he made you heterosexual, you ought to stay heterosexual because that's natural. And if you exchange a natural relationship for an unnatural one, that's what God doesn't like. And oh, my friend, that is littered with fallacies. First of all, God does not make anyone gay. God did not make me to have a temper. God did not make me to be greedy. It's my own sinful nature that prompts me to be angry and prompts me to be greedy. In the same way, homosexuality is a sin, and there may be some people that have a bent towards that lifestyle, but it's not because God made them that way. So, the argument that uh, this is the natural relation, and if I exchange it for a heterosexual relation, then that becomes unnatural. Friend, at the heart of this passage, Paul is hearkening back to the created order of Genesis. God's created order had been established in the opening pages of Genesis. He made them male and female. This is the created order that God has always established from Genesis to Revelation. The writing of the scripture spans 4,000 years. And and God didn't change in those 4,000 years. He wrote to different empires. He he wrote during different generations. and, and, And all of it was always the same. The natural order, the created order, has always been male and female. And it is God who defined marriage as between a man and a woman. And it never deviated. It was always by God's design. So when Paul speaks of the natural relationship, the natural is a male-female relationship. And when that is exchanged for an unnatural one, and clearly the unnatural relationship is a male-to-male or a female-to-female, this is what Paul is writing against. Once again, this is consistent throughout all the Bible. And if we take the Bible as the very word of God, we must understand that God's word has authority over our lives. So in Leviticus, the Lord clearly spoke and did not stutter. He said, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, this is detestable to me. Jesus declared, a man ought to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. This is a direct quote of the Genesis narrative. But then Jesus added, What God has joined together, let no man separate. Can I go one step further? And I don't think this is embellishing. I think Jesus is also saying, let no man redefine. God has defined what marriage is between a man and a woman. Let no man separate and let no man redefine what it means. Because when there's a celebration of homosexuality, It's evidence that God has handed over that group, that individual, those people, that nation to their own self-destruction. I said there are four components of this handing over. The prevalence of idolatry, the prominence of adultery, celebration of homosexuality. The fourth is the worst. It is the giving of a depraved mind. You say, is that the worst? Yeah, it's the worst. In fact, uh, 
we read of this in verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. A depraved mind is a twisted mind. It's a mind that has corrupted thinking. The pathway back to morality is near impossible. Near impossible. Not impossible, but near impossible. So that uh, rationale is out the window. Reason is redefined. There's total depravity, complete sinfulness of thought. And Paul understands that out of the mind come activity. That it is our belief that influences our behavior. So he gives 21 vices. 21 things that the depraved mind does. Now, the case could be made that seven is the number of completion. It's just three times that. It's 21. I get it. But I also think that what the apostle is doing is he's just uh, giving an indictment against the Roman culture. And he just, with rapid fire, just begins to describe everything going on in Rome. I mean, there's, there's envy, there's slander, there's murder, there's deceit. They're, they're making up ways to do evil. They're disobedient to their parents. That one always jumps out at me, friend. It always, out of that list, the one that jumps out at me is disobedience to parents. Moms and dads, always show that one to your children as much as possible, right? I mean, this is a, is a vice. This is, this is vulgar. I mean, disobedient to children. And then list all of them. Because it's all a result of, of a depraved mind. And when you have stinking thinking, it's hard to get back to morality. When you have corrupt at the corruption at your core of your thought process, it is hard to get back to morality. But it's not impossible because in chapter 12, he's gonna talk about the renewing of your mind in Jesus Christ. But here, this is a depraved mind. The last line always gets me. They know that those who practice these things deserve death, but they not only do them, but they approve of those who practice them. That when you live in a culture that's been handed over to the sinful destruction of the self, the evidence is, is that those people, even though they may know right from wrong, they applaud when people practice evil. Friend, every time I think about that last line of verse 32, my mind goes back to the late 90s. It was then when I was in seminary. It was probably then the first time that I ever uh, turned on politics and was engaged there but if you remember then president bill clinton was going through his sex scandals and i remember the day that i came to this conclusion and realized the approval rating of bill clinton was higher among americans after the sex scandal than any time before the sex scandal and i remember thinking to myself that is a portrait of romans 1 we know right from wrong. We know that those who do wrong deserve death. But not only do we continue to do it, but we approve of those who practice them. I know what you may be thinking. You may be thinking what the people in the Roman church were thinking. You think to yourself, uh, wait a minute, pastor, um, you're describing my culture, but you're not describing my life. I'm not guilty of idolatry. I'm not guilty of adultery. 
I don't condone homosexuality, and I don't give a wink and a nod to the 21 vices of a depraved mind. So, preacher, uh, you're talking about my culture, but you're not talking about my life. I promise you that's what some people in the Roman church were thinking this very moment. They were thinking, Paul, who do you think you are? You've never even been here before. Who do you think you are to write us about this? And Paul just says, I'm just giving evidence of how a culture can be given over to their own destruction. And it's rampant right here in Rome. And I say to you, what Paul says to the Romans, I say to the Americans. We see this on display. This is our news feed every single day, regardless of what network you watch. And I know that some of you are adamant about one network over another network. Can I just let you in on a little secret? All the networks just shovel you with wickedness. All of them. They just shovel you with wickedness. And sometimes if you're an individual who just watches politics and the networks all day long, it may do well just to turn off the television and open up the Bible and just simply read and pray and pray and read and read and pray and pray and read because it's just an onslaught of wickedness. I've been very serious, really throughout this entire sermon, very serious subjects Allow me to conclude with something that some might uh, declare as silly. It was an illustration that I heard from Gordon MacDonald. Uh, Gordon MacDonald made the statement that Jesus not only identified with sinners at his crucifixion, but he also identified with sinners at his baptism. At the end of his ministry and at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus came to identify with sinners. He said, imagine with me that if some American CEO businessmen and businesswomen types got a hold of John the Baptist. And they said, John, we really need to help you organize this baptism thing. I mean, you got a lot of people coming here to the banks of the Jordan, and there's so many people. If you just trust us, we can help you organize this thing, and it'll go smooth as silk. So John the Baptist said, sure, that's fine. You guys go ahead and organize. They set up some tables that put various letters on the tables so that a person could come according to their first name of the alphabet. They had to register in order to be baptized. That sounds pretty American, doesn't it? You've got to register in order to be baptized. The first man came up, and the one seated behind the table said, Sir, what is your name? My name is Bob. Bob, we're so glad that you've come to be baptized today. Bob, we're going to register you today. In order to register you, we've got to know the worst sin you've ever committed. And Bob goes, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm going to tell you the worst sin I've ever committed. Oh, you have to because we have to properly log this in our database. So you've got to tell us what's the worst sin you've ever committed. And Bob said, well, I don't want anybody to know about this, but I did kind of steal some money from my employer. Your secret's safe with us. Don't you worry. We won't tell a soul. They filled out the paperwork. They gave a name tag. And on that name tag, they wrote Bob, embezzler, and they slapped it right on his chest. Please, Bob, get in line. The next person comes up, and her name is Sally. Uh, Sally, what is the worst sin you've ever committed? And Sally says, well, this is really bad, but I, at one time, I, I cheated on my husband. Sally, no reason to give us any of the gory details. We understand that there are multiple reasons why someone would commit adultery, and we know the pain that comes from adultery. You don't need to tell us because we're not going to tell anybody about your story, but we are going to put your name on a card right here, and we're going to fill it out for you. And so they did Sally, adulterer, and they nailed the scarlet letter around her neck. The next person came up. It was Sue. Uh, Sue, uh, what is the worst sin you've ever committed? 
Uh, well, to be honest, I really haven't committed that much bad sins before. I'm a, I'm a religious person. Well, Sue, I know, I know, I know you're religious and I get that, but even religious people make mistakes from time to time. So what do you think is the worst sin you've ever committed? Well, there are times that I gossip about somebody. But you know, I may, I may post something mean or vulgar on Facebook, but uh, it's not really that bad. Well, okay, all right, so Sue, we got your name and we'll just say gossiper. Gave it to her, put her in line. Next is a man, what's your name, sir? Uh, George. George, what's the worst sin that you've ever committed? George says, well, I don't know about the worst sin I've committed, but I will tell you my neighbor has a fancy truck and I really love, I wish I had it. I wish I had enough money. I wish I made the money he did. I could get that truck. George, don't say anything else. George, coveter, slapped it on his chest. They all got in line. The next person to come up was Jesus. Excuse me, sir, what is your name? I am Jesus, the son of God. Okay, Mr. Son of God, what's the worst sin you've ever committed? I've never committed any sin. Then why are you here? To identify with sinners. And then Jesus proceeds to walk person to person in line. He goes up to Bob and takes Bob's sticker off and puts it on himself so that Jesus identifies as the embezzler. He goes up to Sally takes off the tag of adulterer and slaps it on himself, and he identifies as the adulterer. He goes up to Sue and takes off that tag of gossiper, puts it on himself. Goes up to George, takes off coveter, puts it on himself. Before Jesus makes his way throughout all the line, you can't even tell us Jesus. All you see are other names and other sins. He's covered from head to toe. Gordon MacDonald said that it was at that point that Jesus walked in the waters of baptism, had a brief conversation with his cousin, John the Baptist, and John baptized him. Jesus came up out of the water. And what the American CEO business types didn't realize, they didn't know that when they wrote it, it wasn't in permanent ink. And when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, all the sin just washed away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, friend. The only hope I have is in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. I identify with him because he identified with me. He came and was identified as a sinner so that I as a sinner may be identified as the sanctified son of our ever-loving Lord. And Jesus came to identify with me so that I might identify with him. And the only hope I have is Christ. To those of you who think to yourselves, I'm not that bad. Pastor, you're describing my culture, but you're not describing my life. Over the next chapter and a half, Paul is gonna indict all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't just barely miss it, we grossly miss it. We have missed the mark. And probably I need to leave you there, but I just can't. Because Paul will say in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
It is Jesus who identifies with us sinners. Let me remind you once again what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, that if at any point my sinfulness becomes less detestable to me in comparison to the sins of others, then I'm no longer recognizing my sinfulness. Friend, this morning, if you're listening to my voice here in this sanctuary or live stream, wherever you may be, and if you have never trusted Jesus, today can be the day of your salvation. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I'm a despicable sinner. I am totally depraved, and I need for you to come and to cleanse me from all my sin so that my sin simply washes away so that when God looks at me, he sees your innocence, your righteousness, your justice applied to my life. And friend, today can be the day. All you have to do is believe by faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And today, you can go from no faith to faith, from death into life. The moment we sing our first note, I want you to come and take me or one of the pastors by the hand. But there may be several of you here, and you are a Christian, but your sin, for whatever reason, is no longer gross to you. Today, friend, repent. Repent of your sin. There may be somebody here and you may be praying for a spouse, a child, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a friend, a coworker, a classmate, somebody who is not saved. And you know they're not saved. And if they were to die today, you know they would not spend eternity in heaven. But they'd go to the very real place called hell. And today you need to come and just fall on your face before the Lord and pray for them. And maybe there's more than a few of us who just want to come. And on behalf of our nation, say, God, please have mercy upon America. And maybe there are some who just want to come and pray for a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Help us to respond appropriately to the grossness of our sin and the greatness of your grace. And, oh, Father, we pray that you will hear our prayers as we declare to you, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, for together we come to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.